Brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 1. And before we do that, let's uh, remind ourselves of our catechism questions for this week. Um, last week's was question number 30. What is faith in Jesus Christ? And we would answer with the kid ans- kid's answer, which reads, Receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel, which fit very well with our message last week on sola Fide, or on Christ alone, I should say, solus Christus. The question this week, question 31, and this is going to be a couple of pages here. What do we believe by true faith? And we would answer with the the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From there he will con- to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. A couple of reminders, too. Um, the men's conference, the BUILD conference with Jared Wilson is February 23rd and 24th. Guys, if you're interested, a couple people have asked me about it, but if you're interested in in this, uh, would love to see a group of guys go to that for our, um, for this conference. Um, and next week, we begin our series in Leviticus. And I'm very eager and excited about that. But this morning, we turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 as our scripture reading today as we close out our series on the five solas. So our reading today, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, the beloved, 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, having heard from your word this morning, this wonderful prayer of Paul to the Ephesians, and what glorious truths are in there, The work of you, God the Father, and the work of your Son, Jesus, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And all for the praise of your glory. God, we now ask that you continue to speak to us as we reflect on this and other passages Give us eyes to see, Lord, and ears to hear. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, today we finish up our series on the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas, of course, sola being the word, uh, the Latin phrase alone. And these were like five mottos or slogans that kind of governed this reformation that took place, transformed Europe, and still, even to this day, um, is transforming us, which was a recovery of the truth of the gospel of Christ that had been covered over by the church in the medieval ages. And so as we come upon last month, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle church door, kind of issuing a complaint against the practices of the church in those days and a discussion about them among his colleagues. And that, as we've seen, was uh, those 95 theses or topics of discussion were taken and copied and translated into German and printed throughout all of Germany and spread throughout all of Europe. And Europe was aflame in what was to happen in the decades later. And this is what we are remembering and recalling this week as we uh, are finishing our series on the five solas. Just a recap for us what these five solas are. The first one we saw in this series was sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, as our sole source of revealed divine authority, not scripture plus church tradition having equal authority, not scripture plus church tradition, plus the magisterium of uh, the decisions of a pope or councils 
or a council of bishops, but that Scripture alone is the sole source of authority. We saw sola gratia, or grace alone, that we are saved by the grace of, of God alone, through Christ alone, through no merit of our own. And that the grace of God was his sovereign deciding to save those who could not save themselves. As opposed to the view that said that grace was just the little bit of help that God would give us to do what we were able to already do. Now we are saved by grace alone. We are saved by faith alone or sola fide. Not faith plus works. That we are justified by faith alone and not by the works that we would contribute to that faith and the justification that would come at the end of our life. That we are saved through Christ alone, solus Christus, and not any other human mediators, be they the Pope or saints or Mary, but that we are saved through Christ alone. And this all culminates with the final, the fifth of these uh, five solas, and that is uh, soli deo gloria, which is to the glory of God alone. Now we saw the, these can kind of be broken down into a couple of different principles. The first one, the formal principle, the question of what is our revealed authority, that was scripture alone. The next three are kind of grouped under the, the what they called the material question of the Reformation. And how is it that we are saved? How is it that human beings are made right with God? And these three together, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The last one is kind of like the capstone and summary of all of them. And it deals with the question of kind of the meaning of history and the meaning of the world and the meaning of life. And that is to God alone be the glory in all of this. This was the, quote, motto of mottos for the Reformation. And because of the other abuses of the other four categories, the deviations from the gospel that were uh, at its core, robbing God of his glory, all of these can kind of be seen as uh, uh, robbing God of his, his glory. The last one here is, uh, to the glory of God alone. It's the capstone of these uh, five solas. So this morning I want, to, want us to look at the glory of God alone. And I'm going to look at it through kind of four headings. And the first, on the four headings, I'll give you all four right now if you want to kind of take notes. The first one is God's own glory. The second one is God's glory displayed in Christ. The third one is God's glory in our salvation or in redemption. And the last one is God glorified in us, or God's glory displayed through us. So uh, the first one, God's own glory. The glory of God. Let's begin with how it uh, appears, or it's described in the Old Testament. The word glory in English is the word that's translated, uh, that translates the Hebrew uh, word that you would see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kavod. Let me hear you say kavod. 
Kavod. And the root idea of this word kavod, and you've heard me talk about this before, the root idea of this word kavod is heavy. It means heavy or heaviness or weight. And it usually kind of conveyed the idea of the, the worthiness of a person. It was when used of human beings would describe their wealth or their splendor or their reputation. And so in some ways it kind of would mean uh, honor, could be used in the honor that's given to human beings. But in the Old Testament, glory, when used for the Lord or Yahweh, when you see capital L-O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that's the covenantal name that God gave. It's the name that God gave uh, to Moses at the burning bush. bush. The glory of Yahweh, the glory of the Lord is connected to the revelation of his nature, of his being, of his presence with mankind. So I want to take just a quick journey as a recap, a little bit through some of the highlights in the Old Testament where God's glory, the glory of the Lord appeared. The glory of the Lord is first really mentioned and described by God himself in his judgment on his plagues uh, against Pharaoh. Where God says over and over, I will get glory over Pharaoh. God's glory was with God's people as he led them out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. God shows up in the cloud um, and the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. The glory of the Lord appeared at Mount Sinai. Remember the story of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Ten Commandments as Moses goes up on the mountain and receives this covenant from God. The scripture says that no man can actually see the face of God and live. And yet Moses was brave enough in his encounters with him to ask, Lord, show me your glory. Which God said, I, nobody could see me and live. But if you go over here into this cleft of the mountain in my fullness, the fullness of my glory will pass by and I will kind of cover you. And then it says Moses kind of glanced over and saw the backside of Yahweh as he passed by. The book of Exodus ends after God had given them instructions for how they should build this Tabernacle, this tent, so that the dwelling place could, of God could be among the Israelites. After they complete the instruction, it says, and then the glory of the Lord descended upon the tabernacle. And the Israelites were terrified at this amazing sight. The glory of the Lord was connected to the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the story in 1 Samuel uh, where the wife of... Phineas, the, the Israelites had lost a battle and the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant. And in the midst of that, there's a man named Phineas and his wife gave birth to a child. And it says that she named the child Ichabod, right? There's that word kavod, Ichabod, saying the glory of the Lord has departed Israel because the Ark had been captured. The glory of the Lord was seen to be located especially at the temple when they would worship. 
But God's glory was not limited to just Israel in the Old Testament. God's glory was to kind of extend and expand and be evident in all of creation. Psalm 19 begins that the heavens declare the glory of God. God is evident in all of creation. <clears throat> Isaiah, when he gets a vision of the Lord enthroned in the temple, and he hears the angels calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that was the psalmist's frequent prayer. Many times the psalmist would write, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Indeed, God was jealous for his own glory. He says through Isaiah in Isaiah 48, For my own sake, and then he repeats himself like when, when God repeats himself, like, you know, you need to pay attention for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. Referring to redemption uh, and the salvation that was to come. I do it for how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. When you look at kind of do a, a word study or concept study of this kavod, this glory of God in the Old Testament, and even as it extends into the New Testament, you have a sense, and I, and I believe that Jonathan Edwards is correct when he says that God's ultimate goal was his own glory. He wrote a treatise on the reason for which God created the world. We read a paraphrase of this in, in home group. I made, the, I made our one home group suffer through this book. Um, but it's a fascinating, uh, very fascinating uh, proposition he's saying here. That God's ultimate goal is the advancement of his own glory. Which makes sense. If God is the most glorious of all things. And God is the, the greatest and most good of all things. Then it would be... Uh, undermining his goodness and his greatness to not have his own glory as the most important thing. That his ultimate goal should be the advancement of him and of himself. Why wouldn't he want himself as the most excellent of, of beings to be the most glorified of beings? Why should he allow a lesser Something of lesser glory to take his place. No, God is very jealous of his own glory. So that is God's own intrinsic glory. Traced through the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, we see God's glory displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being fully man and fully God. This was the, uh, another passage I was thinking of making as our scripture reading for today. And I would invite you to turn with me there to John chapter 1. We are coming into Advent season, and so this is maybe a, a helpful verse for us to 
reflect on. A helpful passage. John begins his gospel by talking about this, the word. And he says that this word was God in verse uh, verse one. And that doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. Uh, it's just referring to the word as he was manifested, which he says in verse 14 is in the flesh. But notice how this little intro in John's gospel kind of reaches its climax. So I'll read through verse 18. John says, in the beginning was the word. And if you're interested, the Greek word there is logos, L-O-G-O-S. In the beginning was this word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, or as the note says, the only one who is God was at the father's side. He has made him known. Jesus is the revelation of God. As we saw last week in Hebrews, the scripture reading for last week in Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That he is the image of the invisible God that Paul writes to the Colossians. That all things were made through him and for him. That he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. And as John says, all things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. That Jesus Christ is the fullness 
display of God. And he says, and we beheld his glory. We have seen the glory and not just any kind of glory, the glory that only comes from God, the father. God's glory is fully displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says something similar in this, to the uh, church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he talks about contrasting believers in Christ and what's taking place in the church as opposed to um, what was still happening in Judaism in those days, kind of going back and reading the law. And this is kind of this long um, point that he is making in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But basically that's what he is doing. He's contrasting the glory of as good as it was, the giving of the law through Moses to the people of Israel, but an even greater glory that has now been manifested in the person of Christ. And he says these words at the very kind of near the end of chapter three. Referring to um, to Jews who had the old covenant, but refused to see Jesus as the fulfillment of it. Verse 14. But their minds were hardened. To, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all referring to the Corinthian believers and himself and by extension, all believers. And we all with unveiled face. What does it say? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Stop and think about that. Remember, Moses, not even Moses was allowed to see the face of God. And yet John, as he wrote in chapter one of John one, says we beheld his glory. We saw him. Paul says the same thing of believers in Corinth as well, that by faith through Christ, we get to see, behold, the glory of the Lord. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. This continues on into chapter four. Therefore, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And then notice what he says here about the work of the, the God of this world, the devil. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He goes on and says, we for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord 
and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. In verse 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that verse. That God shines into the heart of believers and this piling on of descriptions, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory is fully displayed in Christ. So that's the second point. We've seen God's own intrinsic glory, the weight, the heaviness that is due, the honor and the majesty that is due to him and him alone as the creator of all things. And how that's manifested itself in the person of Jesus Christ, the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. But God's glory is also seen in our salvation and in our redemption. Which brings us to our passage in Ephesians chapter 1 today. Paul opens with this wonderful prayer of praise. Praising God for his blessings. Praising God for his salvation that he worked that results in the blessing that we receive. Our spiritual blessings. And notice, I want you to notice a couple of things. It's, there's all three persons of the Trinity here. You have God the Father. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all working together as a part of his purpose and his plan. And that each one of these little three-part breakdown ends with a description of God's glorious working. Notice God's election, God the Father's election of a people for himself. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, according to the purpose of his will. And then notice what the goal is for all of this. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious Grace. Notice you have God's redemption happening in the Son of Christ. So you have God's election for himself, a people, God the Father doing that. And then you have an, all of that to the praise of his glorious grace. Then you have the, God's redemption in Christ which encompasses verses 7 through 12. And by the way, I failed to mention this. This whole passage in Greek is actually one sentence. One long sentence. I'm glad this translation broke it up because it would be uh, almost so difficult for us to understand. The redemption of Christ in God the Son. Notice what it says, verses 7. He just by ends by speaking about the beloved of the Father. And in verse 7, in Him, that is the beloved, that is God's Son, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. 
which he lavished on, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, and here's the purpose again, to the praise of his glory. So you hear of redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have the wisdom that is given us, the mystery of his will revealed in and through us. We have uh, the inheritance that we obtain as sons of God through Christ and all of it for the praise of his glory. Notice how you can kind of see some of the solas in here. You've seen sola gratia through his unmerited and unconditional love to us in God's election of himself through the Father. You see solus Christus, that all things find its fulfillment in Christ. And then here you have the third part of this, God's sealing with the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. So we move from God the Father, verses 3 through 6, God the Son in 7 through 12, and now we have God the Holy Spirit in 13 in 14 in him that's in Christ in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it and then here again what's the goal to the praise of his glory God's glory is displayed in Christ and God's glory is evident in his working salvation for you. And that brings us to the last one. Number four, God glorified in us. When you see this theme of God's glory all throughout the Bible as it Climaxes in the person of Christ. And then we, the, the spiritual blessings that we receive, all for the praise of his glory. That glory is continued through us. I want to put it this way God is to be glorified in us and in our lives. God glorified. In us. A couple of kind of key verses that were used for this. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul writes, he's just been talking about the issue of, of, eating and drinking and whether to partake in these kinds of things. And he kind of ends this whole argument with this one key verse. So whether you eat or drink, and he says, basically, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Of course, Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 39. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The goal and purpose of our lives then is to glorify God. That was what the reformers were so concerned about. They were concerned that in the face of what the medieval church and the way that they had drifted and walked away from the gospel and had clouded it with so much obfuscation and just covered it with a bunch of things that made it so difficult and nearly impossible to see the goodness and the glory of God and his gospel. They, uh, the motive behind all of those things was God's glory was being robbed. The goodness and amazing work of God and his plan of salvation was being obscured. And so many of the reformers wrote that their main motive was the glory of of God and the glory of God alone. So one of the immediate heirs of the Reformation in England were the the Puritans. And the Puritans um, wrote many different documents to try and make sure that these kind of truths, these doctrines of grace were what was being taught in the churches in England at those times. And what they composed were, um, they got together in, at assembly in Westminster, uh, Westminster Abbey in London, and they composed what's called the, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Have you heard of it? Yeah, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then they also composed a couple of catechisms to go along with it, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Longer Catechism. And the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, why did they begin there? Other kind of catechisms would begin in other places like, you know, Beginning with God. What is, who is God? Or beginning with uh, the source of authority or revelation, beginning with something in Scripture. They began, it was charged by some, in a very humanistic way. What is the chief end of man? But that is overcome by the answer to glorify God. That's our purpose in life. That is our ultimate goal in life. If everything that we've looked at so far about the glory of God is true, then our main goal in life should be to glorify God. As a matter of fact, question number six in our um, own New City Catechism that we do. Remember this? This is from back in May. It asks the question, how? That's what I want us to focus on here as we end. How can we glorify God? And we'll say, let's say these words together. And we answer, we glorify God 
By enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and by obeying His will, commands, and law. I think we, we know that we need to glorify God. The question often is, how? How can we glorify God? Oh, that first one. By enjoying Him. I think one thing that could be said of the Reformers when they would, um, as they looked at the Scriptures and realized that is the true revelation from God, they delighted in reading. They delighted in learning what God would have to say. Not, to be, not for it to be clouded through councils and 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 creeds but they had access to the very words of God and they enjoyed God through his word they loved God because of the grace that he had shown through Christ alone and through faith in him alone and in trusting him and obeying his will and his commands and law friends i think i I almost wish we could ask this question every Sunday. Or at least make this a question that we ask and answer every Monday. Maybe that's a, a challenge for us this week. In light of all of this, these doctrines of grace, these five solas of the Reformation, if we were to ask ourselves these question, this question every Monday or every day, how can we glorify God? And to make that our prayer, Lord God, how can we glorify you today? We, go, we glorify God when we, we love him. We glorify God when we love others. We glorify God when we forgive as we have been forgiven. We glorify God when we endure suffering and in, endure difficulties for his sake. We glorify God when we rejoice in persecution. We glorify God in our thanksgiving for every good and gracious gift he gives. We could go on and on. What better way to set ourselves aright every morning than to remind ourselves the truths of what God has done for us and then ask ourselves a question in response out of pure gratitude. God, how can we glorify you today? The glory of God. That was, what the, that was the motive of the Reformation. Because the church at that time had robbed God of his glory. The reformers said scripture alone. The church in that day had said scripture plus tradition plus the Pope. And such a view robs God of his glory. The church in that day had said uh, that grace is this, this infusion from God enabling you to do what you have the power to do and you better do it. Robs God of his glory.
through grace alone. Faith plus whatever works that we might contribute for our justification and salvation robs God of his glory of faith alone. And Christ plus other mediators like Mary and the Pope rob God of his glory that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ alone. So scripture alone, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is all for the glory of God alone. Amen? Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the power that it has to speak into our lives and to penetrate into our very hearts. God, it's through your word that we have this good news about Christ. This word then takes the light of the world, Jesus Christ, and shines it into our hearts. God, we pray that these truths will remove the veil over the eyes of people who do not see yet your glory. God, give us all eyes to see anew and afresh this amazing goodness and grace and mercy and gospel we have in Jesus Christ. Who came and lived among us and suffered and died for us on a cross, was buried and yet was raised for our justification. And that all of us who would believe in him would receive the forgiveness of our sins and have the Holy Spirit given to us as a seal guaranteeing us the resurrection, the dwelling of you forever. God, we thank you for the glory of Christ. And God, give us eyes to see. God, we pray for those whose eyes are blinded to the truth. God, we pray that you and your sovereign plan would remove the veil from their eyes so that they could see you in all your goodness and in your glory. And God, help us all of us here who claim Christ to make our goal every day to live for you and your glory. To begin every, every morning to be reminded that that is our purpose. That is our goal. To glorify you to enjoy you, 
to believe you and to follow what it is you would call us to do. God, we ask that the Spirit will give us the strength and the power that we need to do that. And we pray all of this in Christ's mighty name. And all people said, Amen and Amen. Would you stand for closing benediction? And our closing benediction will be Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.